So yes, like I was saying, the book of Malachi, um, to give a little bit of information about the author, his name is Malachi. And that's about what we know for the most part. He says at the very beginning, the oracle of the word of the Lord through Malachi. And it's really all that he gives us. And very little else is known about him other than his name means my angel or my messenger. Malachi, he also doesn't really give us much about his, uh, the time frame that he's writing, at least not for first and foremost, or as, he, as many of the other prophets do, they'll, they'll say the, the prophecy to, um, to Israel in the days of the reign of Jehoiakim or Hezekiah, usually even specifically giving the um, month, narrowing it down to the month of the reign of that king. But here, Malachi doesn't tell us any of that. And so we have to look at the actual content, what he speaks of in the book to place the time frame of Malachi. So there's two things that help us, help us to know where, where this, when this prophecy took place. One of those is that the temple has been rebuilt and that sacrifices are being offered. So we know that this is sometime after Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they come back from Israel's been in, in exile in Babylon for 70 years. They've returned. The temple has been rebuilt. And it's, this prophecy, prophecy happens sometime after that. The second thing we know is that the problems that Malachi speaks of are very similar to the problems Ezra and Nehemiah faced and that we read of in those books. So, for example, corrupt priests, we'll see that come up here in Malachi. That's a big, a big theme. Uh, the intermarriage with pagans, we read of that in Ezra and Nehemiah, and we see that here in Malachi as well. And then not paying tithes or giving offerings at the temple. So those three things, taking all that into account, we can know Malachi, it was sometime, sometime around the same time frame as Ezra and Nehemiah, likely more towards the end of Nehemiah's account. So that's really what we know about this book. That's when it was. Malachi's name means my messenger or my angel. Um, and that's what we have. Um, but the other important thing to note, the one other important thing to note about Malachi is that this is the last book in the Old Testament. And not just in the Bible, but actually chronologically, this is, these are the last words we have from God for 400 years, known as the, the 400 years of silence between Malachi's final words at the end of this book to what? Right. I heard some whispers of it. Jesus. But even before Jesus, who, who comes crying in the wilderness? Yes, thanks, Annette. John the Baptist, his voice crying in the wilderness. So there's a gap. Malachi's words at the end of this book, and then John the Baptist's voice breaking through. So keep that in mind as we go through. That will be helpful to remember. Uh, and let's, let's jump into the, to the actual content of the book now. Uh, you could break up Malachi into three sections, three messages to the people of Israel. The first message is a message of love. The second, a message of rebuke to the people. And then a message of hope. And there's another element in the book of, of, of Malachi, or the content, that's important to notice. And if you've read the book of Malachi, you, 
probably have noticed it, maybe haven't thought much about it, um, but it's, it's in the way that it's written. Does anyone know kind of the style off the top of your head, the style of the book of Malachi, the way it, it's written? I wouldn't have been able to answer this. I just was curious how many were, to, to gauge the room, the familiarity with, with Malachi. It's written in a style of dialogue between God and the people of Israel. And so there are eight specific times when God says a statement, the people of Israel question that statement, and then God responds. So eight times throughout this book, there are these right in line, right back to back, God makes a statement, Israel questions, and then God responds. And these statement, question, responses, they kind of frame the book. They're sort of pegs that you could walk through the book with. And that's what we're going to do this morning to just work through the content, is look at these, um, these statement, question, responses. So look at verse 2 with me. This is the very first one that we see, and this begins the message of love to the people of Israel. In verse 2, God says, I have loved you. So there's the statement the people say, and this is their question, their questioning of God's statement, how have you loved us? And then God's response, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And he continues. Now this question sets up this, this, first, this first section that we could break the book into, which is the message of love to God's people. But it's a little, it's interesting message of love, an interesting response that God makes, isn't it? Because most often when we read of God's, uh, God reminding the people of his love, he says, remember when I brought, you know, the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, or when I fed you in the wilderness, gave you the manna and the quail. Often God's reminding the people of what he's done for them. You read the Psalms and you see this, the people reminding themselves of what God has done for them. But it's interesting because here actually he doesn't actually talk about what he's done for them as much as he talks about what he has done or not done for Esau, Jacob's brother. You know, he's, he's instead of directly telling the people, look what I've done, look what I've done, I've done this for you, I've done this for you, he says, look, I chose you. Look at the, the, the ruins of Edom. The, they say, we'll rebuild, we'll rebuild, but no, I will destroy and I will destroy. But then look at you. Yes, you've been in exile for 70 years, but I've brought you back here. The temple is rebuilt. You're back in Jerusalem. And so without saying it, God is, is reminding them of his, his sovereign choice of Jacob, the people of Israel. And is saying, I have loved you, Jacob. And this is how. And this, this is that short portion at the beginning is that first message of love. And then he moves in to the rebuke. And so again, like I said, we'll be looking at these question and statement and then a response, or excuse me, statement, then a question and response from God. And we see two of them right here as we, we transition to the rebuke. And so if you look at verse 6, the rebuke starts. And God, he begins saying to the people, you know, he, he uses this analogy. If a son honors his father and a servant his master, well, if I'm a father, if I'm your father, Israel, I've loved you. I'm your father. I'm your master, well, then where is my respect? Where is my honor? You priests who despise my name. So there's the statement. And then the people, they question, how have we despised you? 
And God tells them, you're presenting defiled food upon my altar. And then, that's why I said there, back to back here we see this, this pattern again. Israel questions this statement. How have we defiled you? And that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. And so the people, they're despising the table of the Lord. And is it just that they're saying with their mouths, the table of the Lord is to be despised? No, if you, if you keep reading, it's, it's clear what, what they're doing. It says, you present the blind for sacrifice. And when you do this, is it not evil? You present the lame and the sick, and is this not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly? Says the Lord of hosts. So the, the priests are being rebuked because the people of Israel, they're allowing the people of Israel to take the lame sheep, the blind sheep, the blemished sheep, and offer them up to God. And this, in doing this, they're despising the altar of the Lord. They're giving him these blemished sheep, and the priests are allowing it. And not only that, we actually read at the end of this section in verse 14, God says, Cursed is any man who vows the male of his flock and then gives a blind or lame or some blemished sheep. And so people are, are vowing to God to give him the best, and they're giving him the worst. They're giving him the gimpy sheep with broken back legs or the blind sheep. And it's a, it is, it's like saying, it is saying, the table of the Lord is to be despised. Now, <clears throat> it's this here, I mean, there's a lot of application even just from this that we can, can draw. Um, I know typically we do application at the, the end and we will do more of that. But I want to just pause here because I think it's, there's some clear applications you can make from looking at what God's response is to the people of Israel, the priests, and how they're, they're despising his altar. Um, and so what can we learn? What can we draw? What Just a couple and then we'll move on. Applications we can draw from these offerings that the people are making and what God expects of us. Yes, Vanessa. When we don't prioritize the things of the Lord. Yeah. Do you have a, an example? Kind of put some meat on that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So yeah, the time that we give to God and what that time actually looks like when we do give it to him. That's, yeah, that's a great example. That's a great principle that we can draw from this. What else? You can shout it out. You don't have to raise your hand. When we give the leftovers of our, like, like we, we wait till the end of the month and we, we see, oh, this is how much I have left over. I can give some of, the, I can give some of this. As opposed to 
dedicating an amount that you're giving out of the first fruits of your labors, out of the okay. beginning of the month, trusting God to bless the rest of the month. You're speaking monetarily yeah, yeah, in terms of, yes. Money, but also time and other things. Yeah, right, the leftovers. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, Jim. As I go to work and I commit to prayer on the way in, I have a half hour drive. I, I'm distracted in my prayer. I'm not meditating. Preaching the word. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah, again, that qual the quality of the time. You know, it's not just the time of opening our Bible or, like you said, in, in prayer. But what is that quality of that time like, right? The people were still giving an animal, they were still bringing an animal, but what was the quality of that animal, right? Uh, um, Leanne. Sometimes we just accept things that are not holy in our lives um, rather than going away from them or actually giving them about. Yeah. Yeah. What, do we, what we take in and let into our lives. Roger? Yeah. With joy. With joy. Yeah, I think that the joy is another, another key thing as well. You we see that throughout the whole Bible, how, you know, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Thanks, Roger. Any others? Any other uh, principles or applications here before we keep moving? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the clear you know, almost one-to-one -one principle here is what are we giving God? Are we giving God, um, I've had the word, I was uh, in staff meeting last Tuesday, Nathan gave this devotional on, it was in Isaiah, talks about Moab and having not been stirred up and the dregs are at the bottom of the, the wine. And so for whatever reason this week, I think dregs has been in my vocabulary because that devotional Nathan gave. But again, the dregs are the, the mo most undesirable part of you know, no, you don't drink the dregs or eat the dregs or coffee grounds, right? You don't take the grounds and eat them like cereal after. It's, it'd be disgusting, um, right? You, you don't give the leftovers. You don't use the leftovers. And yet what the people are giving is, is the dregs. And so what is the quality of what we bring to God? You know, first, you know, are we bringing things to God? And I'm not just speaking even monetarily or tithe. I'm, I'm saying our time, you know, are we going to God? Are we in the word but also, what's the quality of it like? This clearly is a huge thing and a huge, huge sin of, of the people here is that God expects, his expectation is our best. You know, so how, how are we when we're preparing our families for worship on a Sunday? What energy and preparation do we give to that versus energy and prep for vacation or some other event? Or just the energy we give. You know, he says, uh, God says, why don't you give that to your governor? What would he think of this? You know, what, what do we give to our bosses at work and coworkers versus to God? You know, we have that same energy that we put into the things at work versus the things of God. Well, let's keep moving here. So God continues his rebuke to the priests. So this, the rebuke section could be broken into a rebuke to the priests and then a rebuke to the people. And so he, he continues on, 
sort of through verse 9 uh, before it transitions. And he tells, tells the priest, I will curse you if you don't take this to heart. Actually, in fact, I have cursed you already. And he says, he says, I mean, listen to this. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. It's a messy, it's not a clean statement right there. God's saying, you know what, refuse is, is, is vomit. He's saying, if you don't take this to heart, if you don't listen, you will be cursed. In fact, actually, you are cursed, and this is what I'm going to do. You priests who follow your bellies, your God is your belly. Well, I'll take your God and I will smear it on your face. This is, this is the, the rebuke of the priest. It's, it's not light words. And really what it comes down to, what he hones in on, is that the priests have broken the covenant of Levi. They've broken the covenant. And so if, if you can recall, if you've read through the book of Numbers, in the book of Numbers, God, after uh, Phineas, Phineas is a Levite, and he, in his zeal for the Lord, drives a spear through a man and a woman, a Moabite woman. This man had intermarried. He had taken a, a pagan woman for his wife. And so in Phineas' zeal, he drives the spear through both of them and puts them to death. And God says, he, he then makes this, this promise, this covenant with Levi, that him and his offspring will be as priests forever or priests through um, in his nation. And what he's telling the priest, he says, this is a covenant of life and peace, and yet you're bringing death through it. You've broken my covenant with you. So then, second section, he moves. In verse 10, we begin this rebuke to, uh, well, he shifts in the rebuke to the priest, to the rebuke of the people. And he begins pointing out again another covenant that they've broken. He says, the covenant of our fathers. And the covenant of our fathers, it's the covenant made with Moses on Mount Sinai. It's the covenant with the people of Israel where God gave the law of Moses. And they've broken it by dealing treacherously with their brothers, marrying foreign wives, and then following those, the, the God of those different wives. Which, of course, the law can be summed up in Love God and love your neighbor. And so they're, they're sinning against their brothers. They're not loving their neighbors. And then, of course, they're, they're breaking the law of God because they're taking foreign women and following after their idols. Now, in here, in this, in this uh, rebuke to the people, well, again, we find another one of those statements and then a question from Israel and a response. And God says to the people that you weep and you groan. This is... Verse, verse 13, you weep and you groan because I no longer regard your offerings or accept them with favor. And the people say, why? For what reason? And he tells them, again, another covenant that they have despised. They despise the covenant of marriage. They've dealt treacherously with their wives. They've divorced their wives and then sought after pagan women. And then again, another another. Another one of these statements and questions, God says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? And then he tells them, Everyone who does evil, you say that everyone who does evil in the sight of the Lord is good, and he delights in them. 
Or you say, where is the God of justice? So here's the, the, the progression. We have this message of love, message of rebuke to the priest, message of rebuke to the people. And then in this statement here, where God tells the people what they're saying, or the people question, where is the God of justice? Everything uh, evil that's done in the sight of the Lord is good. God has a response. And his response here marks the transition to this message of hope. So in chapter 3, beginning of chapter 3, he's responding to the question that the people have, where is the God of justice? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the people ask, where is the God of justice? Well, God tells them, I am coming. This is the, the, the principal message, the pinnacle of this message of hope in these last however many verses, chapter 3 and 4. It's that I am coming, says the Lord. And we're going to unpack this a little bit more, look at the, um, uh, you know, Christ and his church and how we see that here, in, in, especially in this these verses. But first I want to keep, I want to just finish walking through the, the kind of flow of the book briefly, and then we'll come back. So again, looking at those, the, the statements and then questions, we find another one of them in verse seven. And again, we're in the message of hope now. And so this, there's hope in these, these statements. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. This is, like I said, verse, verse seven, return to me and I will return to you. And the people question, but how, how shall we return? And God, he responds with a question here, another one of those kind of questions, statement, question, answers, but he actually is giving them a very specific answer of how to return. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? And then again, the people question, how are we robbing you, God? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. This is God's answer. How shall we return to you? He tells them. Give me the tithes and the offerings that are mine. Quit robbing me. Bring it. Bring it to the temple. And then the beautiful promise, right? Already he's saying, look, you're robbing me. But then he gives them a promise that he will open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing until it overflows. I mean, what a, a gracious God. What Whenever would you see a response of, you've robbed me, now give me back what's mine and let me reward you with blessings that you can't even imagine. And perhaps you're thinking, like I, I did as well when you read this, wait, test me. I thought, the Bible says don't put the Lord your God to the test. But you see here, God's saying, test me. It's, it's in a different sense than when the Israelites are in the wilderness Right, the other time we see, when we see, don't put the Lord your God to the test, and the Israelites are in the wilderness, 
They're thirsty. They're quarreling with Moses. They're saying, give us water. And they're saying, is the Lord among us or not? You know, what's happening? Is the Lord here or not? They're, they're putting the Lord to the test. They're, they're both of the senses of putting the Lord to the test and what God's saying here stem from a, not stem from, but have some doubt in them, right? If you're going to test something, you're going to have some doubt. But one, the Israelites in the wilderness are questioning, is God even here? They're, they're stepping back and questioning. Whereas what God is saying, this testing here, he's saying, no, no, no. Yeah, you might, you might have some fears and some doubts. Will God really bless me? And you know this if you've, whenever you've had to, to give or uh, whether monetarily or not, you go, well, God promises to bless my giving, but will, will he really? Can I really afford this? Right? But the test there is a taking a step forward, a step of action and trusting God. Even in the midst of, of the doubts you might have, you take a step of faith versus the Israelites in the wilderness who are grumbling and quarreling and stepping back and going, oh, is God even among us? So these promises of God, it's a testing by obedience. It's a testing by obedience of God. God will bless when you, you test him in the sense of God promises this. If I, do, if I do this, he will do this. If I give up house, mother, father, he promises he will bless me a hundredfold in this life and the life to come. Well, is, will he really? If you, if you take that step of faith, even with the doubt mixed in, he will Bless it. That's the kind of test that God's speaking of here. It's a testing by obeying, not a testing by stepping back and saying, ah, is he really going to? Yeah. So test God by obedience. Test him by taking steps. And he says he will open the windows of heaven and bless you. Now the book of Malachi, it closes with a few more promises. One being that those who fear the Lord will be recorded in the book of remembrance and that on the day of judgment, when we read of this in Revelation, he opens that book and if your name is found in that book, you will be spared as a son. And then there's a final admonition at the end of the book to remember the law of Moses. And one more final promise. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So that is kind of the outline, the flow of the book of Malachi, the message of love, message of rebuke to the priests and then the people, and then this message of hope. Now let's unpack, come back to the beginning of this message of hope where God says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Remember, this is his response. Where is the God of justice? I am coming. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi, remember his name means my messenger. And then we've got two other, through, through the message of Malachi, we, we hear of two other messengers. The first, God says, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. Who is this? Who is that messenger? There's two. There's a messenger of the covenant. There's my messenger. He speaks of at the beginning. He's the one who prepares the way as John the Baptist. Yeah. Yeah. My messenger. 
who will clear the way is John the Baptist, right? The, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So who's the messenger of the covenant? Vanessa? Right. There, the messenger of the covenant is Jesus. Now, how many of you use that name for Jesus in your day-to-day living? Probably not, not many. We don't speak often in, those ter- in that exact terminology of the messenger of the covenant. And yet, Malachi uses it here, and he uses it for a reason. If you look back, we, we, we talked already briefly about the covenants. We've used that word a couple times. And Malachi uses that word. This is the fourth time it appears. He spoke of the priest breaking the covenant with, that he made with Levi. Then he spoke of the people breaking the covenant that he made with them on Mount Sinai. And then he speaks of the people breaking the covenant of marriage that they made before him with the wives of their youth. And now he speaks of a messenger of a covenant, Jesus. What covenant is this that he is the messenger of? What is this covenant? This, this is the covenant that was foreshadowed back in Genesis 3.15 when, when God speaks to the serpent. He says, the seed of the woman will rise up and will crush the head of the snake. This is the, the, the same covenant that God makes with Abraham when he passes through the carcasses of the animals that are split and lying there. And it's the covenant that Jeremiah speaks of. He says there will be a new covenant unlike the one made with you on Mount Sinai. This is the the overarching covenant of grace that all the other covenants foreshadowed and point and build to. And we see that, again, from that promise early on in the garden to Abraham and God walking through the animals. Because the way that you would make a covenant is there had to be the shedding of blood. And so you'd split apart these animals and both parties would walk through, signifying if I break the covenant, this will be me. I will be split apart on the ground and dead. But Abraham doesn't walk through Only God passes through those animals. And this is to show that this this covenant, the covenant that Jesus is the messenger of and uh, and ushers in, does not rest on man, but rests on God alone. If you look at chapter 3, verse 6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, whom I have loved, I'm adding that in because at the beginning he says, I have loved you. God says, I do not change. And because of that, you are not consumed. Not because of you, not because of anything you've done, but because I do not change, you are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and you have not kept them. You've broken my covenant again and again and again and again and again and again. And yet... I have not squashed you. I have not made you like Edom, like Esau. Why? Because I do not change. Because that covenant he made with Abraham back when he walked through the animal saying, it's on me. It's not on you. I was just reading, I read reading yesterday in 2 Timothy and I read the, the trustworthy statement that Paul gives. He says, this is a trustworthy statement 
For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that's what we see here. That's what we see. This is the message of hope in the book of Malachi is that we are faithless. Look at the people of Israel and we see their, their offerings and the sins and we can think they're far different from us, but we in many ways are faithless. But praise God because it doesn't rest on us. The covenant does not rest on us keeping the law perfectly. Right? It's, it rests on God who actually could. That's why it's such a great message of hope to hear, I am coming. The Lord is coming. It's Jesus coming to actually be able to fulfill the law that we couldn't. You know, the, the, the law, the, the covenant on Mount Sinai brought sin, or excuse me, brought uh, death. And all it could do was bring death. But this new covenant, this covenant that Jesus ushers in, that he's the messenger of, that he fulfills, this covenant brings life and peace because it's his blood. It's not the blood of goats and bulls and lambs. It's the blood of Christ which truly takes away sins. And this is, this is the, the great, great message that God gives to us through Malachi. God is coming, um, and he, his blood will, will save us, will purify us. You know, he talks about sitting like a refiner, like fuller soap, purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. He says, I will purify the priesthood with my great high priest, my son. So that, I hope, I hope you see the, the, I hope this helps you. Each of the Truth in Life classes have always helped me to then when I go back and read a book, I have a little bit more of a framework of it and uh, the, the flow of the book in my mind. So I hope this, this helps you when you do read it next to be able to have, like, uh, like I said, some, some pegs to grasp as you go along. Um, now, I want to close with some application. So we've covered a lot. You know, I kind of bam, 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 went through the book. I just wanted to open up more generally to make a few more applications, and then we'll, we'll close. AJ. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. hospitality to our friends that's nothing that like 
that, that's nothing in our, in our eyes. But to show hospitality to, to people who are outside of our friend group, whether they're in the church or not, like, I think when I, when I hear about this, I think about, like, the Lord expects us to, to go outside, like, to be uncomfortable in these situations, to, to, to stress and afflict ourselves in his service. And I, I think, like, what a, what a better offering we could be making with our hospitality. Or, or, and this can apply to all sorts of things. But. Yeah, what does it cost us, right? God wants, there's, there's a cost to following Christ, right? There's a cost. Our sacrifices should cost us. It doesn't cost us much. It didn't cost them much to give the, the blind lamb who they didn't want to, you know, produce offspring and then have more blind sheep. Yeah, Christy. Um, I guess what stands out a lot in this is just what our God weighs. The tithes and offerings is what is is what He's bringing here, but just what the ways of His statutes and His all those things, and then to have that to test Him. So do them, and a lot of times that this is the lesson I feel like God's been teaching me over the last years. Do as I ask you to do, which could be humble, it could be asking forgiveness, and any of those things. Test. Right. Yeah, that, I, I did look at that word a little bit, and it has this, uh, forgot to mention this, kind of, it, it can mean prove. You know, prove me. Prove that my word is true. It won't fail. Test me and you'll see. And that's, I mean, that's how we grow our faith, isn't it? We have some doubt. We trust God. And he always, always, always comes through. And it builds our faith. Anyone else? Maybe one Two more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I think, okay, we're good. Um, yeah, the, like I said, I've been reading in Timothy recently, and he says the uh, um, godliness, uh, whatever, I'm trying to remember, now I'm blanking on what it is, but that it's of little profit without, uh, discipline of the body is of little profit without godliness. That's actually not related to what I was thinking. But, <laughs> um, I, yes, to, to just put on the show, Right to just put on um, the show for the looks, it ignores sin, and there's really there's no profit to it, no real profit to just the show of, of of good works. Right, there's no power of God there, and that's what we want. We want the power of God. That's what I was. That was the tie in my mind. I was thinking of discipline of the body, but there's no power of God if there's no godliness. So we have uh, this message of hope from Malachi and. It's a message saying, God is coming. God is coming. The, the, the justice may seem like it's not here. You know, the people are questioning it. We talked about this in small group in Ecclesiastes last week, two weeks ago, right? The, the delay 
or the seeming delay of justice here on earth. But justice is coming. God is coming. And for us, God has come, right? Jesus has already come and died, lived and died. But notice at the very end, the very last words that Malachi gives, the very last words before the 400 years of silence, he promises that Elijah is coming to prepare the way. And he says that people need to be prepared. The hearts of the fathers need to be turned to the children. The children need their hearts turned to the fathers. People had to be prepared for Christ's coming then. And we must be prepared for Christ's coming again. Because Christ will return. He is coming back. And it's a great hope. It's a message of hope. But there's also an expectation for us as well to prepare ourselves, to adorn ourselves with good works, to offer not blemished sacrifices, but the best of our offerings. And so it is a great reason to praise God. We should praise him. And in our praise of him, we must give him our, our best offerings. So let me close us now in prayer. Have